hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. I'm very excited to be introducing our second job fair episode. This time, it's a deadly, serious scrimmage between ancient athletes, the Maya ball player and the Roman gladiator. While the hows and whys of competing in these respective arenas was, at the end of the day, really different, the athlete's experience was surprisingly similar. And in some ways, these ancient athletes would have felt right at home in today's professional sports culture. First up, we explore the myths and realities of the ancient Maya ball game, coached by none other than expert on all things Maya, Dr. Andrew Kinkella. Andrew is a full-time professor and director of the Moore Park College Archaeological Program in Southern California. Andrew has spent 17 field seasons in the jungles of West Central Belize studying the classic Maya culture from AD 250 to 900. His archaeological research combines underwater and land-based fieldwork, focusing on the ritual uses of Maya cenotes, water features that are like sinkholes. He also has worked at sites in Guatemala, Mexico, and Germany. Andrew uses his teaching position to bring the joy and excitement of archaeology to the general public, and he's currently focused on publishing his work for popular audiences. Follow him on YouTube at Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be back, Karen. Thank you for having me. I know, me. we're having you back. It's so exciting. <laughs> um, and it's because you're, you're really... Um, you just touched upon the topic of the Maya ball player, but it was that exciting. I knew we had to come back for more of a full treatment. Sure. I'm happy to talk about the Maya ball game. I mean, it's something that I think is just intrinsically interesting and something that people are curious about. It's one of the first questions I get from people when they are asking me about the Maya in general, you know, who are the Maya, what are the Maya? And then it's kind of the first specific. And what about that ball game? How was it played? You know, uh, uh, was anybody killed? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This interests me because, okay, I'm clearly the one who's been living under a rock for all of my years (laughs) because I didn't really know anything much about it. And I've seen exhibits at museums and things like that, that, that address it, but it just hasn't been on my radar and certainly not in our topic today of blood sport. So (laughs) I am going to ask you to set the stage for us. Give us a brief overview, please, of when, how, and why the ball game emerged in Maya society and, you know, what it meant to players and to the society at large. Sure. There's there's lots here, so I could go on for approximately six hours. So I'll try and make this, you know... Uh, I got time. Uh, sh- <laughs> I got time. <laughs> I'll try and make this short and sweet. Well, really, uh, the the ball game is, is a major feature of not just the Maya world, but all of Mesoamerica. So this game has been around for at least 3,500 years. So we're thinking like 1500 BC would be some of the, the earliest stuff. And the ball game comes in with with the larger with the cities really this is you have a city and you're building pyramids but you build a ball court as well so all of the cities have this where somewhere in the city usually near the center there's this dual building this parallel building they're very easy to see archaeologically actually even thousands of years later you just as you're scanning through the jungle if you see these two parallel lumps you're like oh there's the ball court. These, these buildings are long and narrow, and the, the ball game is played in between them. And the buildings also have like a slanted side. So the ball will bounce off the side back into play. And how the ball game works, it's, it's pretty basic. I like to think of it as like fairly brutal soccer with maybe a little, <laughs> yeah, with maybe a little volleyball thrown in where the players are just basically trying to push this solid rubber ball. You got to realize that solid rubber ball, that thing is heavy and harsh, right, to play with. And they're trying to push it down the field. How heavy? I would think of it in the order of like 
um, you know, 10 pounds, you know, to, you know, 15 pounds, something like that. But oh, yeah. it's, it's the, it's the solidness of it. Like imagine getting hit, not just hit with it, but you have to bounce it back using a part of your body, right? You, so it's coming at you. Oh. And, <laughs> and instead of running away, you have to like angle your side and knock it to the next guy. So it's a, it's a tough game played with uh, padding just like a, a football player would have. So the ball players would be dressed in padding and ready to go. You can't use your hands. You can't use your feet. You just have to bounce it with your body down court. And of course, you're trying to get a goal in one side or a goal in the other. One thing a lot of people ask me is what about the ring? Because in the big ball courts, you'll see a ring on either side, like a basketball hoop turned sideways. And Like in Quidditch? Yes, yes, that, that's what I use. Like, that's what I tell them. I'm like, look, if you can actually get the ball through that thing, and if you, if you visit these places, the, it's, it's way up there. It's, it's higher than like a basketball hoop, and it's really narrow. I, I think of it like if it's Harry Potter, it's the snitch. Like, if, you, if your team actually gets the ball through that ring, game over, you guys win. So wow. it's, it's like this... You but know, you can't use hard. your hands or your feet. So no. you've got to project this ball with your, your massive pecs or forearms yeah. or something. Or, or, or hips or, you know, and, and just, and so to get it up there would have been an incredible feat. And the one time it probably happened, people would talk about for generations. Oh, I was there at the game where they got it through the ring. That never happened. You know, so I, I think of the ring as sort of this bonus part of, part of uh, getting points in the game. Yeah. And so why was this game so important, do you think? You say every city had a ball court. Yeah, just about. It's really rare and odd if a city does not have a ball court. And actually, this game spread out not only through Mesoamerica, but you can find ball courts in Arizona. There was a certain time around 1000 AD or so where this game spread into the cultures of the southwestern United States. And so why is this so important? It's everywhere. I think it's because you can use the playing of the game symbolically for all kinds of things. Now, it can have no symbolism. You know, kids can just get together and play a game. Or it can be as, as heavy as this is the symbolism of the sun and the moon. This is day and night. This is birth and death and rebirth. And this entire game actually wraps in to the Maya Popol Vuh, the Maya creation mythology. So there's a major story in the Popol Vuh about the hero twins. And the hero twins are the, are the main characters of the Popol Vuh. They are the children of the corn god. And the hero twins play the ball game against the lords of death, right? In this, Ooh. yeah, this super important game. And it's actually also during portions of this game where one of the hero twins gets his head cut off and basically a head is used as a ball for a little while during the Popol Vuh. That and, sounds messy. Right. And that's where a lot of people ask me like, oh, were there sacrifices during the, the ball game? Did the, uh, did the winning team, was the winning team sacrificed? Was the losing team sacrificed? You know, was, was a head used as a ball? And and a lot of those questions come from the actual Popol Vuh, where this was used in a much more symbolic way. Was this actually a blood sport game or just it carried symbolism at that level of gravity? The answer is yes to both. It does have that symbolism and gravity. And then whenever you play the game, it relates to the Popol Vuh and the rulers are going to be, want to be a part of this and everything. But also from time to time, now this is rare and I don't want the listening audience to think this happened all the time, but there, there was sacrifice that could go along with this. Now, let's be honest. You're not going to sacrifice the winning team because- No, you want them to play again, right? Right. And, and those players, it's not like they're going to play to win. Right. If if they sacrifice the winning team, that game would still be going on today, yeah, and the score that's... would be zero zero. <laughs> uh, you know. So, and they didn't sacrifice the losing team either. What they would do is every so often they would they would have warfare against one of the other cities, and they would capture some of the the, the warriors. And those warriors were now captives. Now maybe they would make a show of them, 
they'd put them out in the ball court and maybe they'd have their best team just trammel them. And then in a big ritual show, they would then sacrifice maybe one or two of those guys. Did they cut their heads off and use them as the ball? I don't think so. Of course I want to say yes for the story, right? But I don't think that That might is... be disrespectful to the right. Pupil Vu. Right? Exactly. It is. You know, it's it's symbolic in the Pupil Vu, but in reality, would did this kind of thing happen? No. The the sacrifice would be would be different. Maybe carried on at a different time, you know, but it's not it's not intrinsic to the game. Got it. Although I, I have to say this description of a 10 pound, you know, for all intents and purposes, medicine ball being right. <laughs> eaten with your muscles there was a lot of blood bruising caused no doubt i mean it wasn't oh, shit sure. but oh my sure. gosh you know this can be this can be a, a toughly pl- played game you know for high stakes um i mean a typical game like this a big game is going to have a lot of pomp and circumstance the ruler's going to be there there's going to be a ton of people watching because the ball court itself built near the, near the center of the city it's built right next to a bunch of the other pyramids so all the people of the city could come in and sit on the pyramids and watch the ball game so this is a huge spectator event full of all kinds of pomp and circumstance full of a ton of gambling a ton of gambling if, if i man if i was one of the players one of the things i'd be most worried about early on is like oh my god my brother gambled everything on this game uh-huh you know it's that kind of stuff Start us with where this ball player wakes up. How's his day start and what's on his mind? What's he worried about? Sure. I think this is something where all of us can be understanding. We can think of uh, sports players from today. You know, what's it like for them to get up in the morning? It's the same kind of thing. So this ball player is going to wake up early in the morning. I would think really early in the morning, actually, because the Mesoamerican world is a hot place. This is going to be hot and sweaty. And my guess is going to be they're going to play the ball game either earlier in the morning or later at night, not midday. I could be wrong. It's just a guess from working there for years and years. Midday is brutally hot. So they're going to wake up early. They're going to have some breakfast that's corn-based, probably a tamale or something like this. They're going to get themselves mentally prepared for the game, just like a player today, right? It's not about doing push-ups. It's about getting your mind straight to do well in this game, right? And they're going to have those pressures of like, oh my God, so many people are gambling on this. Man, the ruler's watching me. Oh, this is going to be a hugely attended event. Man, I want to look good. You know, so they're going to get out the, their good pads, right? They're going to get, get things <laughs> ready. It is, you know, just, just like we would. We want to look good too when we play, when we play sports. And then they're going to they're get all set up and they're going to walk out towards the ball court. And of course, there's going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance, a lot of cheering. Yay! You know, there's, there's of course, going to be kids who have their home team. Kids are going to totally look up to this. Absolutely. Wouldn't you want to be a ball player? Those guys are awesome, right? Uh, as I would say as a fringe benefit, too, a ball player could use this position to better himself a little bit in society. Now, he's not going to be king, you know, but... It's something where he could have a higher social status, definitely. And this is something that kids could look look upon too. They could be like, "Well, I know I'm not going to be king, but I could be one of those." But this cool this guys. is attainable. And totally. so, did they get did they get paid? Um, I, you know, the, stuff like that is really hard to say in a in a society like the Maya, where there's where there's nothing like money precisely. You know, as 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 much. I I think. I think, I think if you're a ball player, check this out. I think if you're a ball player, you lived well, a lot like players today, right? You, you lived well, you had the nicer house on the block, um, everyone knew who you were. So it's not payment as much as it's social status, but, but right. ball, players, ball players ain't going hungry, if that makes yeah, sense. Social currency, man, that stuff's priceless. Right, right. So, uh, uh, of course, you know, so many of us want that more than money, right? Social status. So, ball, ball player is is a major a major way to get something like that. And I mean, you're going to have almost connections to the royalty a little bit. I mean, the king is going to be watching you play, just just like for our modern day players. I mean, you know, presidents go and throw out the first ball at the, at the yeah. baseball game. Yeah. What What were the credentials? to be a good player. Was this something kids, you know, started playing on street corners and at some point someone said, hey kid, you know, 
come and join my team. <laughs> come work. on, yeah. You'll make millions for all of us. Um, <laughs> millions of tamales for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will never go hungry again. Just here. Here's a rubber ball. Um, yeah, uh, the, I, think the, I think the credentials are uh, you just had to be good. I am guessing, though, that there's probably um, a bit of a social difference here where it, if you were already in a bit of a higher class, it was probably a bit easier for you to get into it, you know. Um, so so the, the credentials are really just being good, being in the right place at the right time. I'm sure a ton of kids played this. I'm sure, I'm sure they played it on the actual ball court on the off days. I, I would doubt that the ball court was like closed at all times or something. Oh, so like, like a basketball hoop in, mm -hmm. in any city today. Ab absolutely. I think of it just like basketball um, and different forms of playing it. You can play half court basketball. You know, I, I'm sure that that the ball game was just like that. There were a lot of um, permutations of, of ball game play. And little kids would do this, and, and I'm sure that you wouldn't have to follow every rule. They were just doing it for fun, you know? And, and if you were better, I'm, I, they may have even had tryouts for teams. I could see that, you know? Again, every city's gonna have at least one main team, I would think. As far as you know, were there any sort of training organizations? Ooh, that is a tough one because archaeologically, yeah, I know. It is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, of course. But it's okay. I, I mean, it's okay to ask. You know, archaeologically, we're just happy if we see the ball cart. We're like, hey, look, two buildings. They look the same. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Only another archaeologist would be so mean as to ask you that. Yeah, question. I know. So cruel. I'll have to put me on the spot. Because I know how hard it right. is. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's it's. I I I like the tough questions. What what I would say is for the Maya. We're, we are more fortunate than for archaeology in a lot of other places because not only do we have the actual structures that we could excavate, look at them, and there's, there's all kinds of symbolism actually on the structures. Um, we have murals where they've depicted the actual ball game play. So we actually do know what they wore. We do know what the ball looked like. You know, we do know that there, there are crowds and this kind of thing because they drew it. Uh, but in terms, in terms of an actual organization, I think I would look at, at, at like a ball game team or something as just being um, vaguely attached to the royalty, the kind of the royal lineage, attached to the city. Um, all, mm -hmm. all cities have a, a symbol that goes with the city, you know, and I could see that maybe the team of each city maybe carried that symbol of the city with them. Yeah. And is this the sort of thing that, that you could imagine or have evidence for as as being a, a career i think so you know what i think of it of it as a career just as much as it's a, a career for players today meaning man by the time you're 40 oh time to hang it up <laughs> back to you go know? back into the field Ser seriously seriously <laughs> you know and you see the guy in the field oh guess who that guy was you know that that kind of thing but i i I definitely think it's only good in terms of your social status, the um, sort of overall health and welfare of your family. I think I think it's only a good thing, except for the gambling, except, except if your brother loses it all, which that kind of stuff happened. Yeah, how do we know? Tell us about that and how we know what we know about the gambling. That's fascinating. Okay, so so things as specific as gambling, and, and I get this is where, Karen, you can ask as an archaeologist, you're like, dude, how do you get the gambling? Come on. You know, out, I out did that very nicely. That, <laughs> that wasn't skeptically posed at all. I am incredulous, and I am on on the edge of my seat to hear it should be totally skeptical because <laughs> if, if i was an archaeologist i'd be like how do they know um so again for the maya we and and you know karen is an archaeologist you look at everything you got so we have the excavations and we have things we find as archaeologists we have the murals we have the maya writing where the maya wrote about things and we also have spanish accounts when the spanish first came and they wrote down a lot of stuff so um some of the some of the gambling comes from from what the Spanish noted. They noted like massive gambling going on. And of course, you know, the Spanish were like, oh, tisk tisk them with oh, yeah, those, gambling. Those, those immoral natives, right? right. This sort of thing. Yeah. Doing, doing fun things that humans do, Ugh. you know? Um, so so we, we can piece all this together from Spanish reports and, and along with the evidence that the, that the Maya have less, left us. So there's good evidence for gambling and, and there's, there's versions of this game that, that continue to today, you know, and, and you, can, you can still see that. And again, if we bring this back to modern day sports, 
You don't think there's any gambling in sports? You know, like, no, I've never heard of that. I know, I know, but shocking to all of us. Um, COVID ain't stopping no sports gambling. You know what I mean? Uh, sports gambling is just is is it's a worldwide. I man, I almost want to say it's a like a cultural universal because of all the cultures I've ever worked on, I've I've seen this. Yeah. What do you think of that? I mean, what what do you make of that? What does that say about humans generally? I think we have this draw. I think it might just go to the basic something for nothing, you know, and we we have this draw not only for that, but we have this maybe pride or belief in our team. We're like, they'll get me there. My team. You know how we talk about teams as ours. Oh, well, well, how are we doing? Oh, my team, you know, Uh, and you think the, okay, these people who are almost, even today, they're almost more than human a little bit. These people will get me to my golden riches, you know? Yeah. Yes. I, I totally agree with that. And, and I also think there's a little bit of aspiration in, in that, right. And this living vicariously, this having a bit of something larger than life and, and who wouldn't want to be, you know, really accomplished uh, athletically and able to succeed at that level. Yeah, absolutely. We, we all want a piece of that, you know, and like sports figures and stuff, even when they walk through a crowd, people want to physically touch them, you know, and have a, a part of them, or they want to buy their jersey for $100,000 on eBay, you know? It, <laughs> that's why it's so expensive, because it's thick, because it touched their skin. Because they has, sweat in it, yeah. It, it is, it is. Yum! Now, now it's, it sounds a little disgusting, but that's, you know, in, in anthropological terms, it has mana, it has this, this, um, this force to it that, that just a regular t-shirt doesn't. This one's special. This has mana. This has luck, you know. That's right. And you're never going to wash it again, no matter no. how rank it is. No, you don't. You wash out the mana. You know, you can't do that. You wash out the luck. What kind of hierarchy, if any, do you think might have existed here? You know, these guys, who did they answer to, these ball players? Oh, man. Well, you got to look good to the king, right? And it's, I guess it's going to depend on who the king was. But overall, any, any intelligent king is going to be like, okay, this is my team. I want to support them. I want to be at their games. I, at, during the pomp and circumstance at the, at the beginning of the game, this is going to be a very positive thing. So I want to be seen. So I'm the king and I, I want to I be sitting in my box seats, you know, at the, at, the, at the ball game and having all my people see, oh, I like the ball game too. And actually that great player down there symbolizes me and my power. Yeah, you don't want to piss the king off. No, don't want to lose. And, and again, if you lose, it's not like, you know, every Sunday you lose and you're sacrificed. It's not like this, but even just a regular loss, it, it would suck, you know, a whole huge crowd going, boo, you know, the, the, it's got to be really demoralizing and tough. And your brother's just lost his, his house and all his money, you know, and, and you're sort of- So your mom is gonna kill you. Oh man, and, and, and you look up to the king and he's like scowling at you and you're like, oh. No, you know, or even worse, he's not even looking at him. Right, Who right. Are you <laughs> looks up and there's nobody sitting there. Ah. Is that the biggest mistake the ball the ball player could make? Losing? Yeah, you know what? I, I would say I, I would say that's the easy answer. Is is yes, of course. The biggest mistake is losing. Um, but I think it's it's maybe also not um, kind of acting in good faith and carrying like the positive symbolism of his city with him like you know yes i am a symbol of this city and we are powerful and by the way we're more powerful than you you know and and having that 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 sort of um stage gravity to them you want you want to have that as well this is this is a spectacle just as much as it's a game just like any game today in the past it was too it was a huge thing you know that that the that the city can look forward to that it's excited about how is the game itself structured to the best of our ability to reconstruct it? With okay, okay, stuff? look, Karen, you got me. Okay, okay, look, I, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> you I, mentioned I, the snitch, and so of I, course, no, I, thought, I, I don't know. Is there um, a quaffle? Is there? And yeah. I'm not even a huge Harry Potter fan. It goes to show you how insanely endemic all of that is in pop culture. Of now. course, of course, no, me too. I've watched the movies, but that's that's about it, you know. Um, and and I I appreciate I appreciate J.K. Rowling I I love the stories I think she does an incredible job but for the um 
for the for the this the inner structure of the game i th- i think the tough part to it is the game la- uh, has been around for like 3500 years so it's going to change and morph a little bit also on top of that the the ball courts are different sizes so it's not a standardized oh. yeah it's not a standardized i can I, here you know what i can answer this question a little bit i can say that it's not a standardized ball court and the team sizes change too. You can have you can have all the way down to just one on one, but then you can add to the team based on the size of the ball court. So you could have like four on four in like a big ball court. So so the the number of players can change for the overall game to still work. Uh, it's just as long as you can bounce the ball, you know, off your body, off the slanted side of the building, and and move it forward. I don't think there's too much of a of I don't think you can divide the positions any more than sort of basic offense and defense. And, and that's about it. You know, people who are actively pushing the ball forward to the goal and people are, who are actively trying to not have the other team push the, the ball into your goal. So very soccerish in that way. I was kind of amazed to hear you say that it could go all the way down to a one-on-one. Somehow I wasn't imagining that at all. That sounds insanely challenging sure. <laughs> and physically demanding. Yeah, and I don't even know what something that small would look like. You know, we classically envision it as like maybe a three-on-three or a four-on-four, but I've been to some of these ball courts and some of them are pretty small and just standing in them, I'm like, I don't, you definitely couldn't cram, you know, six or eight people into this one. And so how risky was the Maya ball game? Let's say a normal home team player. For a normal home team player, now you can get definitely banged up, you know, if, if, I find your remains archaeologically as a ball player, you might look a little like worse for wear over, over the years, just, just like an athlete today, you know, like how many athletes don't have problems with their shoulders or this kind of thing. So this is going to be a knocked around dude, but, but I, I think he gets out alive. Now on the flip side, if you're a bound captive headed for sacrifice, things are going horrible for you. You know, this yeah, is. Let's talk a little bit more about that scenario. It's a blood sports episode, after all. We we got to get a little bit down and dirty here. Blood sport, it is. So on on this day, we're gonna trot out a couple uh, bound captives, and their job is just to look bad, show show this city how crappy the other city is, have our <laughs> team just pummel them. <laughs> and then they're going to be sacrificed. And honestly, if you think about this thing, I don't think it's that much different than certain things you would see gladiatorially, maybe in ancient Rome or this kind of thing, where, where yeah. you send someone out who you know, they're just, the, the fun for the audience is the booing at the person who they're going to sacrifice pretty soon. You know, yeah. so, so you have this kind of stylized, ritualized game. You, you just beat them, you know, and then... Um, in order to sacrifice someone, how, how this would be done, let's, let's say this is done at the end of the game, where this, the, this single person is going to be sacrificed. They're a bound captive, they're from another town, they've just played the ball game, they've lost horribly, and now they're going to be sacrificed. So in the, in, the, in the court, the person doing the sacrificing, the executioner, I guess, would come out, maybe he himself, or he'd have someone else kind of hold their hair back tweak their body so that it's chest out. And then they'd use a very sharp blade to slash the chest open right through the center, right through everything. And of course, there's going to be a massive amount of blood. And then when the Maya did sacrifices, it was often a blood sacrifice because you want the blood to flow like rain. Because the rain brings the corn. And if we've been listening, everything's about corn for the maya always because un- underneath the ball game the ball game takes place in the popol vu by the hero twins who are the sons of the corn god so it's corn 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 and <laughs> rain right so we're sacrificing this guy we're slashing him right through his chest and it is of course bleeding massively and that's what we want we want the blood to flow as rain to ensure the harvest. So that's what the blood sacrifice is doing, ensuring our next harvest of corn. To what extent is it fair to compare this Maya ball playing sport to a modern day professional 
sporting group or league? I think it's very fair to compare these things. I always enjoy doing this in, in archaeology because, yes, of course, there will be one or two aspects of it that are, that are different, but there's so many similarities. There's so many similarities in the feel of it. You know, I, man, I bet there's identical feelings between an NBA player and an ancient Maya ball player at the beginning of the day before a game. You know, they're having their own little things that they do to center their mind and make themselves ready to go, you know, and the, the, the excitement of the game itself, the speed of the game, the crowd going wild or the crowd hating you, you know, this, this massive uh, roar of people who, who are all focused on you. I, I think there are way more similarities as a, as a person, you know, culturally. Yeah, yeah, way yeah. more similarities than there, than there are differences. Of course, we can say, well, today in the NBA they get paid millions of dollars. Well, in the ancient Maya time, yes, the ball player wouldn't have gotten paid millions of dollars. But but so what? That's that to me is very secondary. So I, I really like comparing these um, ancient sports to the modern because it gives you the tactile feel of what it was like. Yeah, they're people just like us. They just lived yep. a long time ago in a yep. different place, and yeah. you know, all the basic needs are all the same, and the wants. Andrew, thank you so much for this fantastic conversation about the Maya ball game, uh, ancient and modern in some respects. Oh, it was great being here as always, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really a blast to talk about. Now, let's step into the arena with Cody Ames to take a stab at the professional life of a Roman gladiator. See what I did there? Too much? Yeah. Cody holds two master's degrees, one in archaeology and ancient history from the University of Leicester, and one in classical literatures and languages from Texas Tech University. He earned his bachelor's degree in classical literatures and languages from Texas Tech University. He's an English language arts teacher at Dumas High School in Dumas, Texas, and a part-time instructor at Amarillo College, also in Dumas. Cody works as a foreign travel group leader at EF Tours in Boston, Mass. He is passionate about local outreach and education. And as I understand it, about the outdoors and about sports. Is that right, Cody? Yes, absolutely. Okay, awesome. So maybe tell us quickly what it is about ancient Roman gladiators that so interests you. What first brought me to, to Roman Gladiators is I mean, obviously the movie, The Gladiator, back in 2000 with Russell Crowe. I mean, it was awesome. Oh, yeah. Blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that, that kind of gets you hooked. And then you start doing a little digging. And, you know, that just kind of spurred that passion on. It's like, wow, this, people actually did this. And this was actually people's lives. And you could, you know, make a lot of money <clears throat> if you're in the right position or hey, you could lose your life, which is, which is what happened, unfortunately, for a lot of those guys. So that's just, it, it got me you know, hooked into that, that exciting, sexy, you know, ancient lifestyle that is kind of foreign to a lot of people today. So, you know, getting that message out there to those people that, you know what, we might not gladiatorial battle anymore, but a lot of those thematic elements are still present in, in today's society in a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's about as high stakes as you can get, isn't it? You could either wildly succeed or you, you know, go quickly into that long sleep. All <laughs> right. Yeah. Little. That, that, <laughs> that puts it into perspective. All right. Well, please start us with a quick context. I always call it the 101, just an overview of kind of when and how and why the gladiatorial games emerged in Roman society when they did. And and what the games meant both to a gladiator and to society at large. It's largely understood that the gladiator started um, from the Etruscans. There's a little bit of debate out there still that if the, the Greeks started it a little bit before the Etruscans, but um, the main narrative is the Etruscan, Etruscans started it pre-Roman um, pre inhabitants of Italy. And it started as grave battle. So if a wealthy aristocrat died, you, he needs to be fed in the afterlife, just like he would be fed in um, this life. But instead of, you know, food, wine, water, that sort, of, that sort of thing, they consumed blood, the life essence 
that they no longer had in the afterlife. So to accommodate that need for blood in the afterlife, you'd have a pair of slaves and they would battle to the death on the graves with the idea of the, the blood of the loser and also the victor. I mean, there's going to be blood that's going to be seeped into the, to the ground. And that's going to feed the, the person who's died in the afterlife. Wow. Well, all right. So let's fast forward a couple, a couple of uh, centuries. And it turns out that people loved gladiatorial battles. <clears throat> the only problem is in Rome initially is you could not have a gladiatorial battle just for the sake of having gladiator battles. So what people would end up doing is doing it for commemoration of a, 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 a father or a family member or someone who has died uh, recently, presumably. But you get Julius Caesar, who understood the, the political and social impact that gladiators had. So he had huge gladiatorial battles in honor of, let's say, his father, who died 20 years ago. <laughs> so he understood its, its power. And then you're able to provide these games to these citizens for the, you know, for everybody really, but this is really how you got the lower classes, the middle classes, if there was such a thing, it, to really buy into what you're doing. Yeah, he's horrible at politics, but you know what? He puts on gl great gladiatorial mm, battles. Mm, I'm gonna mm, give mm. this guy a little break. And so that that's really cool to think about, you know, the sort of, soothing aspects weirdly if we can think about it of this you know kind of violent battle sometimes to the death and, and how that was used to um you know pacify the lower classes what did it mean to upper classes or did upper classes of society attend the games as well um kind of the narrative with gladiators is lower classes love it upper classes abhor it like it they they hate the the bloodlust of it or, or you know, to a large extent. We have a lot of ancient texts who write a lot about gladiators. Some of it is, I mean, some of it is, you know, nuanced and complex in its nature. And a lot of people just, it's, it's horrible and it should be stopped. And so it's, it's interesting to understand the gladiatorial bouts within the confines of who was telling the story. Obviously the lower classes are not telling the story. So largely we don't we don't get a whole you know the whole picture of that we get it from the educated the educated few who are patrons of the upper classes who you know have the the ability to you know turn their noses up at, at something so you know pedestrian and it's it's i think it's really something worth looking into and archaeology positions itself uniquely in that regard looking at artifacts and coming up with a narrative in that regard as opposed to you know, ancient texts who actually, you know, wrote down what they were thinking and what they saw. Could we dive in and start off like by the side of one of our gladiators, maybe in whatever the equivalent to um, the locker room is? Uh, you know, I mean, is that, did they have locker rooms? How, how did gladiators get ready for their matches? Well, I mean, it, uh, for, uh, first and foremost, gladiators were slaves. <clears throat> by and large, gladiators were slaves. Even if you were not a slave going into a prisoner of war, condemned criminal, uh, whatever, if you were just a, a, a free man who was down on his luck, that had to have drawn a lot of people into the, uh, to the uh, gladiatorial fields, right? So they see these guys on festival days and they're rock stars. There's no sugar, they're, they're rock stars. Depending on where you are, let's say we're in Rome, between 50 to, I don't know, maybe 100,000 people, Conservative estimates put the, the Coliseum seating around 80,000. But let's say we're in Rome and you, you have 80,000 people chanting your name and screaming for you. I mean, that is going to be a very powerful motivator, both for the, the men in the arena and also for onlookers looking onto the games as a possible job choice. You know, they're thinking, my life sucks. Why can't I just go be a gladiator? <laughs> And be taken Nobody care of. shouts my name. <laughs> right? <laughs> that my mom when she's mad at me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, people are watching this from the crowd and they they might join up with the gladiatorial schools too, the Ludi too. And they were slaves, but 
when you take things into consideration, you put things within, within context, context with other Roman citizens, their lifestyle, although very, very dangerous, was very comforting compared to lower class citizens. They got three square meals a day. Um, they got massages. They had access to hot and cold baths. They were very well taken care of because they were such a high commodity. So while you're here, <clears throat> we're going to take care of you. And their day was very structured, almost militaristic. Yeah, tell us about that. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start in the morning when they wake up. What's, what's on their mind? You wake up at dawn, typically. And you're going to go eat breakfast. Their, their breakfast was largely vegetarian. These guys were, you know, the UFC fighters, the WWE fighters of their day. Like it, They needed to be taken care of and they needed to look good. They trained and yeah. ate constantly. So they had a, a largely vegetarian based diet, a lot of barley, a lot of ancient, uh, a lot of ancient authors called them barley eaters. So barley eaters. Yeah. Cause huh. you want, you want that, you, you, you want that, you know, fitness and nutrition, but at the same time, you want a little bit of padding, you know, like a lot of us have after, after COVID you want a little bit of padding. So if you get sliced with a sword, for instance, you want a lot of blood, but you don't want a lot of, I mean, you don't want people to die. That's not, that's not the intent for most of these games. You want that blood and you want that, you know, excitement because that's what the games were founded on that blood seeping into the earth, but you don't want gladiators to die because they were so expensive. Oh, so right. you'd wake up, you'd eat breakfast, you would train. And that's, and that's kind of the basis for the day. You, you would train depending on the kind of fodder you were. If you were, a, if you were, you know, a smaller guy and you, Fitness is probably your, your best avenue for success. You're going to do a lot of agility training. Let's say you're a bigger guy and you're going to go into the heavyweight classes, the Mermillo, the Thrakes, um, those sorts of classes. You're going to do a lot of, of heavy lifting because carrying that heavy armor that some of those guys would have worn was excruciating during the day. So fitness is key. It, it sounds like there was kind of a gladiatorial role for many different physical types. You didn't all have to be the big brawny. There were so many different variations of gladiators. You had the, the, you had the heavyweight classes, you had the middleweight classes, and then you had the lower classes. And obviously people had their favorite gladiatorial battles, just like in, let's, I keep comparing it to UFC. Certain gladiators matched off with certain gladiators. The, the gladiators that did fight against each other were uniquely situated for the gladiator that they were fighting. Um, the most telling of, of this matchup would have been with the net man and the, the fish, um, the retiarius and uh, the, the, the secateur, the retiarius and the secateur. And you had these two fighting. One carried a, a trident and a net, just like a fisherman. But you're going against a heavyweight, a heavyweight um, gladiator who is very well protected. But and this is so interesting because, you know, what's going to win? The fast and agile guy or the, the heavyweight guy with a lot of armor? And a lot of times it didn't go the heavyweight armor's, armor guy's way. And it's just so interesting. Just hypothetically, how would your guy with the net and the trident take out the heavy guy? I, I guess there's some sort of entrapment. I don't know. I, please tell me. <laughs> it was based on the premise of a fisherman. So you, uh, the, the retiarius would throw his weighted net on top of the gladiator. You get ensnared. You're still capable of movement to a certain extent. You're going to be entrapped. If you don't get out of that net in time, the, the opposing gladiator, the retiarius, is going to attack with his trident. And, you know, those guys don't miss. They, they trained so well in that. And going back to the, the day, their daily routine, they weapons trained a lot. Whenever you're first getting there, you do the fitness aspect of it. But then once you, once you got your fitness under you, that's when you worked on your skill, your weapon set. And these guys were deadly lethal with these weapons. It's, it would have been incredible to see these guys. And so looking at a guy with a trident and you know, you're, you're encased in a net, it's, it's not looking good for you. you. Your best bet is to you know, cut out of it as quickly as possible while dodging the trident, which is most assuredly coming your way. And you're weighed down by your heavy armor, which all of a sudden is not exactly an asset when you're exactly. <laughs> ensnared. Right. Ooh, yeah. Oh my goodness. I can feel the tension as, as a claustrophobic <laughs> person right away. Um, 
Well, you've talked a bit about the intense training that prepared these gladiators for their various matchups, one against the other. How, could you tell me a little bit more about these ludi, about how they were organized? You know, who, who did the instructing and how did the person become a student at one of these places? Were you recruited? Did you apply? Yeah, well, how did that all work? There's a sign-up table in the quad, in the forum. <laughs> join the secutor. No, join the retiore. <laughs> You're red, be a blue. No, that, and that's very interesting. Because the gladiatorial games were so large by the turn of the first century and so compelling to the Romans that it just, it exploded. And because it exploded, you had a, a huge need for recruitment. And so, you know, the Romans were very active militarily. And that's uh, Yeah, that's, yeah, very, their calling card, right? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're aggressively expanding in all areas. And so they, they used that to their advantage. They would take a lot of those prisoners of war and put them in uh, looty, gladiatorial schools. But then you also had just condemned criminals and, you know, some of these guys, again, were fit for an afternoon slaughter. So the way that the catalog usually worked, the order of events for the certain day, is you'd have animal hunts or animal hunts in the morning. You'd have executions at lunch. Nobody, usually nobody went to those. And then the gladiators in the afternoon were obviously the, the calling card of the fights. And so you needed a lot of, uh, you needed a lot of people to populate this this games card and that's in effect that's what it was and so did they send the prisoners to these ludi to train them so that they would give a better show absolutely you'd be sent to a school and you would ex receive extensive training if you were perceived as a good candidate for you know glad you know, to be a gladiator again some of these people were put in there put in there to to simply die we need slaves to reenact Theseus and the Minotaur. So we're actually going to put a slave in a Minotaur mask and we are actually going to kill this guy on stage. So we need a slave for that. Reenactments for battles and also reenactments of famous mythological scenes. The Romans love this stuff, but you have to have people to, to be in there and, and slaves really fit the bill for this. So it's like you get to be a gladiator or you get to be uh, you get to be the Minotaur. You know, how cool does that sound? Right? So they were sort of like the extras, huh? So they didn't get all the training and they didn't get any glory, I bet it sounds like. <laughs> it sounds right. like they just sort of filled their brief role and got snuffed out. Well, wow. Okay, so so we've got this conscripted class of gladiators, some of whom received this special training. What about voluntary recruits? Like you were saying, these, sure. these people who might be sitting in the, in the stands thinking, hey, maybe I ought to try my hand at that. Right. I, I, like I said, you have 80,000 people shouting for somebody, and that is a, a powerful motivator, especially when you're going home and you're sleeping in some place that's freezing in the winter or burning up in the summer. You've got no f food, no clothing. The gladiatorial lifestyle is very appealing. And you, you, there would have undoubtedly been several people from the, the lower classes say, hey, you know what? My life sucks anyways. I'm going to go be a gladiator. I'm going to give it a shot. And where did they go to do that? Like at the end of the game? So they advertise, come come see <laughs> see the master if you'd like to, you know, you want to be out here next time. Yeah, how did that work? <laughs> I would imagine that they would go to the gladiatorial schools, the actual gladiatorial schools. Yeah. Um, there were three big ones in Rome. There's one attached to the, the Colosseum, actually. It was, it was, one of the most renowned in all of um, the ancient world, obviously. The other one, the other really big gladiatorial school is in Capua. And so you have these freedmen coming in, filling up the ranks. And you are, whenever you sign up to be a gladiator, voluntarily, you become what's called an infamis, which is a, almost the dregs of society. It's the weirdest thing. Because people love you, absolutely love you. Virgin brides would dip their hair jewelry in your blood because it increased their fertility wow people would buy your sweat as an aphrodisiac it was insane really did they buy it i mean were there like uh, souvenir stalls and things where you could get vials of blood and sweat that's amazing it wasn't chotskis it was i would not gonna say common practice but people would put this in their face cream the, these people were worshipped worshipped for all intents and purposes 
inside the arena. There were action figures of these of these gladiators. There were people used them for marketing purposes. Like, hey, come sponsor my product. I'll give you I'll give you a couple bucks. Or they were used for bodyguard detail. I mean, these guys were rock stars on the outside. But if you take away the adornments of the gladiatorial arena, being a gladiator meant you were stripped of every civil liberty which was afforded to every other class. And so long as you were aware of this, the shock value would have been much less. So they were really not respected, but they were in this crazy way, almost worshiped at this, like that, that the dirty deal with the devil. That's what fame is. And it still is right. In some respects, that's, that's. And it's so maddening to think about like you're cheering my name and you won't, shake my hand, like what is wrong? So it was a really actually, this was no big dumb jock who just is out there. And I mean, there, there was actually a lot that went into being a gladiator. And I guess you just had to really accept um, some very negative outcomes along with the good, even if you were wildly successful. And these guys, this is, I mean, people don't really talk much about this, but I mean, these guys only fought maybe, maybe five times a year. The rest of the time, you're a slave in a cage, shackled, training. Like you said, it's, it's, that, it's that deal with the devil. You can have all this, but we're taking away all this. Were they actually paid in money or treasure or anything like that? Yeah, these people were, were contracted out through the, the school's owner. He would write a contract with the person putting up the games. I will give you this many... Uh, gladiators for this fee this fee is for you know if so, if one of them dies if you're requiring that one of them dies i want this amount of money this guy cannot die so i mean they had negotiable oh, wait 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 wait. this guy cannot die so did they fix the games sometimes i'm not saying they fixed it if uh, so, if somebody's favorite gladiator fell in the bout and the victorious gladiator has the option to you know you know spare him or kill him and you largely take into account the people's opinion of him. The emperor, if he's there, he's got the final say. And presumably he's listening to the people because that's the, that's the purpose of the games is to make these people happy. And so it, it almost sounds like a, a kind of prototypical you know, reality TV program in some respects where a lot of this really was sort of staged and pre-planned. I mean, yeah, it's battle between humans and that that is not going to ever be entirely predictable as to the outcome but it sounds like there was at least some effort in some cases to have general set of narrative beats they wanted to hit in particular bouts <laughs> you know like these guys live together they ate together they work together you're in close proximity with somebody for an extended period of time you're going to grow some sort of a you know relationship with that person like hey man don't fight this guy. He's hard. You know, like, yeah, like any military platoon or something. Right. I mean, so you have those relationships going on in the background. Those sort of relationships are kind of what drives reality TV today with yeah, the actual sport going on in the background. I, I, I think of WWE, for example, but at the end of the day, like these guys were friends, you know, like I get it's, it's scripted and you're trying to create drama and all that sort of stuff, but the human element is still there. Like these guys, you know, insulting each other to a great extent, and they're going to go grab a beer afterwards. You know, like, dude, that was awesome what you said to me. Like, I had, I, I could, I, it took me a long time to keep a straight face. And I, I don't think, I mean, it wasn't scripted in the gladiatorial games by any means. The narrative, which is going to be put out to the masses, is going to be done by professionals. You've got professional ad writers. They're called scriptores, you know, scripters, right? And then you've got um, the heralds who are going to build up the excitement for these sorts of games. The gladiators themselves are kind of at the, the behest of these, these marketers. But I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't impact exclusively how these guys would have perceived the, each other in, in the houses and also in, in, the, in the arena itself. Just because you lost to a guy one day didn't mean that you wouldn't live to fight him again in another day. Yeah, and you're going to have your meal around the table with him and, and you might be training in the Ludai with him. What I really want to ask you now, you made a tantalizing mention of women. And I wonder how women would have fit into this, you know, kind of old boys thing. Did women fight men or did women just fight women? Tell me about this. It was a very, we call it a niche 
market, they were, they were not on the same level as, as the men. They were used almost jokingly. Um, women would fight against women, gladiatrix would fight against women, or they fought against dwarves. If a woman fought against a man, it was, it was probably a, I wouldn't say a joke, but it was a very jovial thing. You know, people I think would have been laughing at this. It was. They would have been laughing at the man, right? I mean, absolutely. let's be yeah. honest. You're exactly, no, you're exactly right. Just guys fighting a girl. Get out of here with that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Patriarchy works that way. Oh. Right. And a lot of them are called, you know, Amazons, Amazones, you know, it, it, which, you know, fierce warriors. But I, like I said, it was, it was, a, it was a very you know, lighthearted thing. Like, we're going to put this woman against a dwarf and let's see what happens, you know? So it, they were, you know, exploited to the masses. It was not very popular. And like I said, they were, they were outlawed 200 years before, about 250 years before the eventual end of the game themselves, just because it was so, like I said, exploitive and just in bad taste. Yeah, well, I mean, and let me just guess if gladiators were on the lowest of the low end of the scale, these women must have been somewhere even below that. Exactly. You're exactly right. You you go into the Colosseum and you see the stratigraphy of, you know, discrimination in ancient Rome. And you've got, it, it was a social hierarchy played out you know, through seating. And it was, it was very, very apparent where women stood in society. And would these women have been also kind of prisoners of war, captured peoples from elsewhere, or were Roman women shamed in this way? Well, Do you it, know? Was kind of, it was kind of the same thing. You're not going to see very many prisoners of war going into the, the gladiatorial ranks if you're a woman. However, you still had these octori you know, these volunteers of the free class, the lower class lifestyle was appealing. Hey, I've got nothing going. I've got nothing going in my regular life. You know what? I'm going to let go somebody. I'm going to let somebody take care of me for the rest of my life. If I die, that's fine. And it is that same sort of appeal, a much lower numbers, obviously, but that would appeal was absolutely still there for some of these women. Like I, I, I want to do something with my life. I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to go be a gladiator. I'm going to see what happens. Who did these gladiators answer to on a day-to-day basis? Like who, who owned them essentially? <laughs> they would answer to the trainer. And the trainer was probably ex-military, ex-gladiator. He survived long enough, knew the ropes, knew how to train these men. And so largely you would be in, in close contact with your trainer. And then above him, you had the owner. You had the actual owner who was the buyer and the seller of the, the gladiatorial school of the Ludi. So it was very structured in that regard. Um, an owner is, is going to probably, I can't imagine, you know, Julius Caesar owned several pairs of gladiators. There was a very lucrative market. There was a lot of money to be made. So the, the owners would have been largely um, overlooking you know, making sure that the trainers were doing what they were supposed to and making sure that the gladiators were doing what they were supposed to as well. Very, very structured, almost like a prison, you know, almost like a prison. Do you see any parallels between, say, modern team franchises with the owners? And, and they obviously are the ones making huge money. We know that star players make big money, but the owners are really the fat cats at the top. I keep comparing this to the UFC. There's a lot of comparisons there. But you do have the, this tight confederation of fighters that is, that is a brotherhood. You know, they, they, they craft that narrative beforehand in that these guys aren't paid a whole lot of money, but they're very passionate about what they do. While at the upper end of that, you know, Dana White and his and the owner of the, of the entire thing are so incredibly wealthy. Cody, thank you so much for taking the time to take me down onto the ground of the arena of a gladiatorial game. I learned so much. Yes, thank you very much for having me. This was awesome. This was great. The glory of ancient blood sports might be more familiar to us than the gore, although plenty of today's professional sports certainly leave a mark. Rugby, anyone? 
but the ancient world's elite athletes enjoyed the same perks and endured the same pressures that define the modern professional sports industry. The perks of celebrity, the thrill of victory, and of course, the adoring fans and the chance to embody the glory of your patron, region, or entire nation. Just something to think about next time you're rooting for the home team. That's a wrap on today's job fair. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Hey, working overtime listeners. You can follow today's guests, Dr. Andrew Kinkella and Cody Ames, on Twitter at Andrew Kinkella and at Ames7000, respectively. That's A-M-E-S for Ames. As always, we're on social media with plenty of exciting show updates and additional content. Please share your thoughts and questions with us at Working OT Series on Twitter. If you like the show, consider leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the word out. And share the show with the history lovers in your life. Thank you so much for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Lullaberty, and Ras Cunningham. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.